Welcome back to First Principles. I'm your host Rohan Dharmakumar. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that First Principles covers a lot of topics: leadership, organization building, decision making, learning methods, careers, life principles, habits, people management, parenting. It goes on. But if there's a common thread that connects all of them together, it's entrepreneurship. Thus, today we have a supercut episode about the lives of founders. You're probably familiar with our supercut episodes. Every now and then, we go back to our earlier episodes and stitch together some of the most interesting conversations from them. And so, we put together this special supercut episode that takes you through the lives of five accomplished, original, and diverse founders. They are Kunal Shah, the founder and CEO of Cred, Shrikant Velamakanni, the co-founder and group CEO of Fractal, Ronnie Screwala, the co-founder and chairperson of Upgrad. Gaurav Punjal the co-founder and CEO of An Academy and Smita Deora the co-founder and CEO of Lead School we cover their childhood their careers and the choices they made all of which helped them to become the people they are today of course i'll urge you to go back and listen to our full episodes but that's if you're not caught up on them already otherwise this is a perfect place to start let's begin First up we have Kunal Shah the founder and CEO of Cred. I spoke with Kunal earlier this year in a conversation full of wonderful analogies and sharp perceptions of the world and how Kunal's childhood and teenage years when he was thrust into work to support his family led him to the core philosophy behind Cred. Kunal you have a lot of theories on what motivates people what drives them what their ambitions are what their needs and wants are etc right um in fact just right now we were also briefly discussing some of that my question to you is that what drives kunal um you know it's a tough question and i have been asking this question all the time because uh, when i started my journey uh as an entrepreneur money was the driver because i did not have it right and you always felt uh uh that that's one thing you need to have and that's what will change your life and uh when i got the money it did not really matter so the question was that what really was driving me and i think uh, over a period of time you realize that uh, there are other things that really motivate you so what i have figured out is i love seeing people grow uh, uh transformation that they go through in achieving their full potential so i love uh working with people through different startups i love uh investing in founders and see their transformation and journeys uh and just seeing that impact that what were they 5 years ago what are they now in 5 years and company just happens to happen as a background impact to this right uh and i have concluded that that's what drives me uh seeing that change being able to be a participant or a catalyst sometimes to see people transform and it's 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 funny but it can never end because there is always going to be a new level a new person a new challenge 
uh and it kind of gives you a very long purpose uh i i believe that as a country we will not prosper till we create more uh talent more risk taking behavior more entrepreneurs uh and we'll have all the all sorts of characters in the middle before we get to become a transformed nation but i think seeing this journey from the front row is the biggest motivation well how does this manifest at cred um and as an entrepreneur as an entrepreneur what drives you as an entrepreneur what drives me is doing things that most people think will not work out i think that's what most good entrepreneurs are built of uh uh their fuel is uh all sorts of mockery all sorts of disbelief that oh this won't work out that won't work out uh this guy has no clue and it's amazing right because i get worried when that stops i'm like oh shit like now we don't nobody believes that we have things to do uh and it, it's a it's a negative motive it's a negative fuel but it works out well like it proving and doing things contrary to what the world is doing right uh when we started the journey at cred we said we are going to focus on this and people are like oh such a small market why would you focus on that and and uh then eventually people have figured out oh it actually works out fine india is exactly like that so to me doing that drives me but at cred what drives me is the the journey of people right uh we've been very fortunate both between free charge and cred seeing transformation of leaders uh we've never really had a problem of attrition in any of the companies that i have been fortunate to be part of uh because it's just uh by the way it's it's painful also for a lot of people because transformation is painful uh you have to know yourself first then change yourself and then excel that journey is painful for most people so i think if you ask anybody add cred what the journey has been they will say uh exciting but painful painful because uh, expectations is put on themselves versus somebody i'm not a micromanaging guy i'm like do your best uh, but there is a, everybody has an eye of what is best but we'll we'll come back to there's a section where i do want to talk to you about the org structure sure. how you build leaders etc sure. but for now i'd like to go and learn a bit more about cred once sure. again sure if i were to ask you to explain what cred is mm-hmm. in a couple of lines in a way that my 13 year old could understand mm-hmm. what what would you describe it as uh cred is a uh, a group of selected individuals who are curated based on their trustworthiness creditworthiness and our intent is to create a frictionless world for them because they are trustworthy so imagine if we build a city where most people were selected based on their trustworthiness would the city be built differently would we have different rules on how commerce works or networking works or or payments work and and if you can create that that's what cred is trying to do so very interesting your definition of what cred is is in a sense a definition of what who cred users are or what the cred community is yes cred is a place uh it's not a verb it's not a uh a uh, thing to do uh, it's not an app but we are what we are doing is trying to create a sort of a club or a uh, 
a place where these people are there together and can they therefore benefit by the virtue of being there but rohan if you think about it many countries that have become developed are exactly that right uh developed nations are all about creating high trustworthiness high credit worthiness and therefore a lot of things just become better right uh and and our view is that you cannot change the country in one broad stroke you have to do it one cohort at a time so if you can make one cohort benefit so let's take an example uh what if uh actually there's a real example uh we saw an ad once in uh, koramangla of a apartment on rent and the guy wrote uh, 5000 rupees discount for cred members so we reached out as like why would you do that and they are like oh we know that is all credit worthy customers i don't need to do screening what if uh, uh if i got them i don't need to worry about uh, deposits or any of that stuff and my view is that what if that starts happening at scale today how do we handle mistrust rohan you want to take an apartment give me 8 months deposits 7 months deposits in the us there is no deposit culture because nobody has that kind of money lying around to deposit and keep it and not that the landlord is investing in some high return scheme he keeps it in the bank account so the question is that why do we have a lot of these things that we have done because you reduced? assume some yeah. some yeah. unknown event in the future therefore you kind of just prepare yourself for it yeah. even though you may inherit and i'm saying that our methods of creating trust are outdated if you want to become a developed nation we have to adopt how trust works in nations that are have developed or are in a very advanced stage of development correct we we'll probably come back to the comparison that you made between cred as a community and between developed nations uh but for now how does cred make money yeah so uh, once you bring a lot of trustworthy and creditworthy individuals to one place uh there are many constituents who are trying to uh cross sell to them because these are also harder to target customers right so there are two large buckets one is brands slash merchants who want to cross sell to these customers they either want to uh uh offer a reward to create a trial so for example let's say you're launching an ott platform and you want to give 2 months free to this or a ken subscription give a trial to this customer and the possibility of this customer retaining or continuing to pay is very very high because it's self selected in some ways right now there's another constituent which is bfsi which is all the entities that are currently trying to uh, cross sell to these customers and again for them uh uh credit worthiness trustworthiness is an important criteria so anything to do with cross selling an insurance cross selling uh, a financial product of any nature is going to be the way we make money we have started so you doing, take a commission out of yeah like, we take commission so we make commission from anybody who's trying to cross sell on this platform that's the platform fees that we take from them correct and so, uh, sorry yeah. sorry to interrupt but if i were to kind of visualize this what you're essentially doing is your bringing together a large set of individuals i mean per my research i think it's about over 11 million yes. in the credit right and and you could visualize them as part of a large room yes which is walled off on all sides yes. and anyone who wants to kind of interact with the people in that room or the people between themselves you will take some kind of like a commission or cut Correct. out of that that's essentially Correct. the credit business uh, it's model. easier to understand if you think it like a place imagine we are in indranagar right now indranagar is that place there is a certain 
amount of trust for the net credit worthiness that let's say this place had uh, and now putting up a store over here you pay some version of rent slash commission or share of revenue in some ways right so the thing is that you can create different models and different brands will want to be here now one brand will come and say i want to open up a branch of a bank over here one will say i want to open up a restaurant over here i will want to open up a clothes store over here and that's what we facilitate got it one of the most popular analogies if it exists to describe cred would be what i'm sure you've heard uh, people trying to describe cred in many ways cred is x cred is y cred is a gated community within a city that's the best way to think about it uh uh got it tell me a bit about your growing up i've i've read a lot um that's influenced you a lot and and your entry into entrepreneurship um i mean not not the f- uh nothing fun about uh growing up uh, uh when i was uh, fairly young uh my uh dad uh, who was in a very large uh, let's say seven brothers joint family decided to do his own startup in pharma distribution did not work out well so when i was i would say 13 14 uh uh not that we were affluent even before that but even that was a big one where we just lost everything that we had and and we uh uh, uh had to sell everything that we had whatever and and move to a actually pretty much the size of this room uh 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 we four of us uh, my brother mom and dad had to move and and i had to start uh working uh from the age 15 or so my first job was a part time delivery boy part time data entry operator uh uh and i used to support the family through that uh and uh what also started happening is uh i had to uh uh give up on a lot of ambition on education or whatever so i i i chose to do philosophy as my major largely because uh, uh it was the only batch available from 7 to 9 am uh, so i can do a full time job after that uh and uh so it was an accidental journey from a science student uh becoming a philosophy major uh but uh, to me uh, i had to do everything to make money i think to support the family and and really get to learn life the hard way was there and 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 i still uh, uh i was just telling somebody about a story so no i still have a scooter that i move around with i i used to have a a scooter that i should do delivery with and uh, i i remember once uh, going to a petrol pump and uh, i had literally 5 rupees and that time the fuel used to be like 26 27 rupees uh and i told the uh, guys like ke 5 rupees karalo main servicing me de raha hu like although i had just money of 5 rupees to do a delivery and i was going to get money over there and i remember that guy knew that i was lying i had no money more than 5 rupees to pay for it and i i know for a fact that uh, he put more than 5 rupees fuel for sure and and there are uh, and there is no way i can thank him in life and i think a lot of times we forget that all these successful people and successful entrepreneurs thousands of people have made this small contribution to really make them successful and and the only way i 
see it as paying forward, right? I can't go and find these individuals anymore in life to kind of say thank you to them. I think to me, uh, it's surprising that when you are willing to make transformation in your life and you want to fight your circumstances, you find many, many things just supporting you. Um, there's a lot that becoming financially independent at a very young age would have taught you mm-hmm. um, and influenced your worldview. My question is actually the opposite. With the benefit of hindsight, do you think you lost anything by becoming financially, by being forced to become financially independent at such an early age? Uh, I think you lose uh, uh, what youth stands for, right? Uh, having fun, doing interesting things, traveling, all of that. Uh, Did you ever try to, you know, counteract for that once you actually could it couldn't couldn't be done Rohan. I, I tried the time passes it's just time passes and you become a certain person right uh, I, I was making a joke uh, my parents have been to more countries than I have been to uh, because every time I was feeling guilty of not being able to travel I would send them for a trip <laughs> and the thing is that a, a, a lot of times we do not appreciate the fact that uh uh uh, we've paid these price, uh, uh, but it's it's fine. I think to me, uh, the joy of creating keeps me very, very happy. Uh, now, uh, do I think about it? For example, uh, a, a niece uh, in the family is currently backpacking and I'm just amazed at the experiences that she's having by traveling to different places and meeting different people and uh, deciding a last minute plan and doing this and I'm like like I feel that wish I had that experience that early on to expose but I think all of us are choices we've made in life what is your grand theory of human needs wants and desires it's no different than what is biologically known for all mammals I think uh, it's the same uh, but I think we all get to different levels through different parts of our journey uh, sometimes uh, circumstances forces you to go uh, faster up there sometimes circumstances force you to come down quickly as well uh, but I think uh, I uh, in, in India I, I believe that uh, the the Western Maslow does not apply as well in India we just want appreciation of everybody else and and, and status is a big thing that drives us uh, I don't think we are a society that truly gets into self-actualization Varna podcast would have millions of listeners now <laughs> Fair. So you're, you've made this point earlier as well that in India, we care more, India and Asian countries, we care more for what other people think of us rather than whether we are satisfied ourselves. Mm-hmm. Do you see this like, you know, I mean, how do you, like, what are some of the examples where you see this uh, reflect in our regular life, um, which don't possibly exist in the same way in, let's say, a Western country? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I, I I remember this particular incident where I had gone to uh, Portugal and 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 I noticed that uh, uh, at these big big churches, normally uh, the cemeteries were outside the church and and uh, uh, the tombs were kept outside, but there were some tombs inside the church. And it's unusual; you never see tombs inside a church. So I asked the, the guide over there that buy these things over here. And he made an interesting observation. There, there are two types of tombs over here: royalty and explorers. So 
guys like Vasco di Gama and others who were venturing out and taking risk were celebrated in the country by getting their tombs inside the church along with the royalty. But do we celebrate risk takers or we are mostly a culture which is mocking them because we do not like their gut on what they are doing. So I think we are going through go through that journey, right? Even if you look at uh, and I've not seen uh, Shark Tank. Uh, uh, I've only heard about it from other people. It's still getting the culture and the vocabulary inside the families who are watching that content. But it's still mockery driven on risk taking people. Because as a culture, right, we have not been risk taking. We are not, oh, I'm going to go adventure sport. I'm going to go and explore. Like we, we were as a society a lot more conservative about taking risk. And I think, therefore, we are still to go through that journey as a society to really applaud, think about this, every single entrepreneur's documentary web series of movie in the US is made. In India, we've made story of almost every scamster or gangster and maybe four of them of each gangster. The point is that do we really want to know? Right? Uh, I'll give you one story. When, uh, there is a gentleman called Prem Chand Raichan. I don't know if you've ever heard about him. Prem Chand Raichan uh, was once the richest man of India. Uh, and not many years ago, maybe 150 years or, or just a little over that. Uh, this person uh, started a business under a banyan tree opposite Asiatic Library in Bombay and selling insurance to ships that were taking cotton to UK. And eventually transformed that business and created that we something we, got, we know as Bombay Stock Exchange. He's the founder of Bombay Stock Exchange. And till date, he owns the Guinness Book of World Record for doing the largest trade as a, a broker uh, uh, till date in the world. And, and uh, built Rajabai Tower, that big tower that we see in Bombay for his mother Rajabai who could not see to hear time. Like that was the flex of this person. Now, there are at least thousands such stories. Next up is Srikant Velamakanni, the co-founder and group CEO of Fractal. And Srikant's childhood too is an important part of his journey as a founder, especially when you consider the fact that growing up, he decided never to go into business because his father would often tell him there was no such thing as an honest businessman. And yet, in 2000, Srikant pulled in 2 lakh rupees to build Fractal. That's right, they've been around for nearly 25 years. Srikant tells me what changed. And I'll ask you this question. How many lines do you need to describe what Fractal is? We power every human decision in the enterprise. Just one line is enough. All right. How did you come across this line? See, throughout my career, I've been fascinated by mathematics and human behavior. Those are two things that have shaped my thinking. And for the first time, when we worked with, back 23 years ago now, when we worked with ICICI, we were trying to enable them to do a lending decision within 30 seconds, and then overall disperse a loan within 30 minutes. We built that 30-minute loan product. And from then onwards, we've always been thinking 
that it is about powering decisions, enterprise decisions, human decisions through algorithms. We think that is a really the right place where AI plays the maximum, most impactful role. And that's how we've defined our business. If you think of a company, typically they make hundreds, millions of decisions every single day. Human beings, we make 250 to 300 high quality decisions every day. If algorithms could help us make better decisions, we'll have much better lives to live. The world will be a better place. That's why powering every human decisions. Are you a fan of analogies? Please. Yeah, of course. If you were to use an analogy, how would you describe fractal? Fractal is what McKinsey is to consulting. Fractal is to analytics and AI. Tell us about your family history. What did you start? Where did you grow up? And what was your pathway to entrepreneurship? Great question. I started off uh, in Assam. I was born in Andhra Pradesh. My parents are from Andhra Pradesh. But my father used to work for an oil company. My early years I spent in Assam during the Assam agitation that were happening back in the late 70s and early 80s. And we moved from Assam to Orissa and then back to Assam and then Jodhpur and, and so on. So we traveled a lot. Every three years we would move to a new location. I would have to start off with a new set of friends, make friends again. It was, it was painful in some ways, but it was also fun because I could make so many friends and I became you know, comfortable with whole, the whole of the country, right? I, every, any state in India, I could speak multiple languages, Assamese, Bengali, Odia, Telugu, so on. So I could learn a bunch, bunch of languages. So it was a great upbringing. I, I wouldn't uh, change it in any way. It was sort of a middle-class upbringing. My father used to tell me that uh, honest businessman is an oxymoron. That was one of the things he used to say. And I could not understand it. And he explained to me that businessmen are always corrupt. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he used to see that in his own line of work, people trying to bribe him and trying to threaten him and so on. I saw some of those instances. It shaped me quite a bit. So when I grew up, I told myself that, look, I have to go and take, you know, get world-class education, but I will always work for a high-quality company. I'll never start a business. It was very clear to me. I liked the IIT JE exam. I really loved the kind of questions. So I took that as a challenge. Uh, I don't think I should have been an engineer, very frankly, because I think I had more interest in math than in solving engineering problems back then. Uh, and then after while at engineering, I also thought of doing an MBA. Again, um, it was more because of the test. It was test was very exciting. I took the test and I went to business school. I'm Ahmedabad. And after that, after doing all of that, I was thinking, okay, now what should I do with my life? During these years, the couple of things I figured out. One was that math continued to stay as a passion area. Secondly, during my engineering days, I found a lot of interest in the subject of psychology. We had a course called Psychological Basis for Human Behavior. And I read that book and I could read that whole book, hundreds of pages. I could read it because it interested me a lot. It, it was harder to read those engineering books by an applied mechanics and so on, but this was this was fun. I really loved it. So I told myself that this seems to be the area I'm very interested in. I have continued reading books on psychology throughout. So psychology or just how does human behavior shape is has always been an interest area for me. And math was the other interest area. So when uh, in 97, during my MBA days, I met Narayan Murthy of Infosys in a business ethics class. I started to feel like, look, I think there are, there are honest ways of building a business. I see some examples out of India. 
And then when I also saw people like me raising capital, I felt like this is a good time for me to quit and start a business. So I told my friend Nikhil in 1999 that, hey, you know what, I'm going to quit and I'm going to start a business before the turn of the millennium. And I didn't know where that came out. It was like a large language model was popping that text out automatically. I told him and then I said, okay, this, okay, did I just say that? Really? Do I really mean it? And then it, then it, then it became something. And then by January of 2020, uh, sorry, January of 2000, I'd already quit and I started Fractal. You said, and, and, and I kind of agree with that, like the thinking back then where uh, business, you did not have many examples of businesses to look up to, which is probably where um, your father's opinion, which was widely shared during that, like, you know, you're the 80s era, etc. And yet you decided uh, to kind of start a business. Other than Infosys, were there any other businesses that kind of changed your mind? Because growing up, the influence of your family as a child, you said you wanted to kind of like, you know, work for a company. So what made you change that and say that, look, I want to start a business? The other example that I saw and was very inspired by was HDFC Bank. They were also a fantastic bank that was, you know, really well run, very process driven and technology friendly. Some of those things have changed now. I'm, I'm talking of the HDFC bank of the late 90s. I also, it was a very inspiring and ethical bank as well. So these are the two examples that come to mind. Even the Tata group to some extent, but also an example of a very highly ethical, ethically run business. So there were a couple of examples, but Infosys was the closest because I could see someone who was, who had no uh, entrepreneurial upbringing, a bunch of like-minded people coming together to starting a company and making it a great success. Mind you, Infosys wasn't a big success back then. In 1998, they were probably 50 million in revenue and they had just gone public and the public issue was a failure. So it was not as if it was such a great company or such a large company, but it was an example. It was an example that disproved what my father was telling me. And that sort of made the difference in, in making the decision for entrepreneurship. I'd like to go deeper. What is it that you believe really attracts people to entrepreneurship. Like when you watch the folks from Infosys or HDFC, what was the difference that you saw or what is it that young folks see in an entrepreneur versus a manager versus an employee? I think an entrepreneur is trying to make something out of nothing. Is creating something from thin air just by the sheer will of hard work, uh, imagination, uh, ability to lead, bring people together. It's like you are the one person who's saying, look, I can make something happen and I will convince the rest of the world that something like this is possible. That is really the entrepreneur's job, right? To imagine, to bring people together, uh, galvanize them into action and then convince everybody else in the world that this is a good idea. You know, you must back it in some way or the other, even if it's a landlord or your spouse or your children or your of friends or or your or your employees or future employees you have to convince or your customers clients of course so that is really the entrepreneur's job to have the confidence and the belief that you know what i have i'll come up with something and i will convince everybody else to think like the way i'm thinking you're 49 today how has your definition of success changed from say 23 years ago when you started fractal I think even if, if I go back even further, to me, success was about winning something in the current. That is how I used to think of success back in the day. 
Have I scored a hundred on the math test? Would be a would be success. Have I scored a Have I got a good rank in an IIT JE exam or? Well, these are all objective yes. scores as well. Yes, that I would define success that way. Um, measurable, something that uh, is in the in the in the immediate uh, future, and something that I could work towards. So there's not no long-term thinking in, involved in that. I think if I look back now, I would say that that was more of a, of my um, puzzle t puzzle taking, test taking, um, instant gratification side of me that was looking for some proof. That look, you know what? I'm not okay. I'm smart enough. Or look, I can create something. Or look, I can I can win a competition, a debate competition, or I can. Uh, do something right. That was that was how I defined success as. I never thought of money during those days because somehow, uh, growing up in a place where it uh, it felt like you know I did not really have to. Uh, magically, my parents used to somehow manage to make the ends meet and even you know lend to friends and family members and others. So we somehow were seemed to be well off. So I never thought money was a constraint or money was. Uh, I had to make a lot of money or something like that. But it was about success. It was about winning in the immediate future. And that it was also like when you win, somebody else is losing sometimes, right? I think now when I think of success, I think of progress in a direction. Am I better today than I was yesterday? Um, that is one way I look at, at success. Secondly, I think of, am I building for the long term? I always think of, okay, what can I do today that guarantees fractal success over the next 50 to 100 years? There's something I can do today that sets, up, sets us up in the right way. So much more longer term thinking and much more in terms of looking at this as, am I making progress? Am I better off today than yesterday? Am I making, uh, am I becoming a better human being? Those are the kinds of ways I wish to measure success now. Also, all of them are much more subjective than objective. Yes, it's a good point. Next, we have Ronnie Struwala, the chairperson and co-founder of Upgrad. Ronnie's on the opposite end of the spectrum from Srikant. Growing up, he told his parents he's never going to work for someone else. Ronnie calls it serendipity or even karma or destiny and explains how he went from earning 500 rupees on the weekends to running multiple successful and colorfully varied organizations. Ronnie, it's very hard for me to put an easy definition around everything that you're involved with. There's upgrade. There's Unilaser Ventures, there's Swadesh, there's RSVP, which is a media production house, and there's other things as well. So I will ask you to tell me what all are the areas where Ronnie Skruvala, the entrepreneur, is involved in. So I think two common themes, since you're looking for a common theme and a hook. One is impact. Second is um, enjoy and joy at work. Um, and third is um, just a deep penetration and being involved. I want to roll up my sleeves and do that. So to simplify that, I think I don't normally break up my day and you say, what's a typical day look like? It doesn't, but maybe what is a typical week look like? I think a fair part of my time right now is to, to push the envelope, open the market and disrupt the sort of learning, skilling and workforce development market around the world. Um, I think Swadesh, by the way, for people who actually think this has only been the last 10 years, I started the foundation along with my wife um, in my 20s. We just renamed it Swadesh after one of our movies, and we can talk about that. So that, that I think, is it's a, it's, a, it's a very strong root. And I think my 
allegiance to get into even educational learning came because we were working with about 1,200 schools and Anganwadis in rural India. And that was my trigger point that says, if this is where we are here, what does one need to do with the landscape? And movies, um, it's an unfinished story as storytelling goes, right? Because I exited the company in 2012 to Disney, then I had a five-year non-compete. So to me, it's a hobby. It's a passion. And I think it's a very important one because of the simple reason that when it's a hobby, the most important thing is 99% of the things you do, you want to do. And 1% you have to do. Whereas when you're running a business, I think half of the things you do, you have to do and half of the things you want to do. So the powerful part of having a hobby that balances my life today is the power to say no. And that allows me to filter, filter, filter down to the stories I want to tell. A, not look at it as a business. So all the compulsions that go with that. Um, yeah. And I think so... That's the fun part. Some people play golf and I'd like, I like to read scripts. I like to make movies and occasionally go and cheer our kabaddi team or our table tennis team. Yeah, that's a fifth one, right? U sports. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, fourth in, in that category. But yes, I think so. I think learning, skilling, workforce development, no, no, non-for-profit. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to count back. There's Upgrade. There's Unilaser Ventures. So Unilaser Ventures, I agree. Actually, that's just a investment vehicle. And mm. I have to say that within two years of my divesting UTV to Disney, uh, I kind of realized that I'm somebody who wants to build, not invest. And it is fabulous because I think I've had some great uh, investments that I did, Lenscart and many others, and worked through with the founders in an early stage. But to me, I wanted to go out and build something. You know, when you're interacting with founders, it's great. See, mentorship, I'm not big on mentorship, and I think everyone looks at that, and we can talk about what mentorship means to different people. But uh, I think if you're talking to an entrepreneur as an investor and you give him 10 ideas, and if he takes eight, you know you're in trouble in your investment, right? Because that means... What is the person thinking and what are they doing? So if you're giving one or two, and nothing is yours really. And I think I go back to my early days when I first had to go and tell my parents at that stage when entrepreneurship was not even a word, but you wanted to branch out and not do a job, which means you were riffraff. So at that stage, I think when I sort of, when my dad asked me two things, I mean, why? And I said, I just don't think I can implement somebody else's vision. And I'm somebody who feels I need to implement my own vision, which I think was an evolved statement at that early stage in life. Um, and the second, of course, was a more scary one for him. He says, so what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. All I know is I want to do something on my own. At that time, I wasn't dead clear I wanted to do cable TV or media or whatever else. So long and short of your question, if you're looking for a hook, it's all of these. Do you have a sense of unfinished business that is also pushing you forward? Because one of the things also is that when people don't stop, we're saying that like, I'm going to take it easy now. There is some kind of like a challenge or like, you know, unfulfilled purpose that's pushing forward. Like, is there anything else that like, you know? So I look at it this way. I look at the fact that I think I come from a lower middle class background and I use soft skills, not hard skills, because I didn't really study that much um, to get further in life. Um, and therefore, this the field that I'm in right now or the status that I'm in right now, I feel blessed. And I think anyone who feels blessed needs to actually always be unfinished business. That's how it should work in that. Because if you're in a position where you can influence, influence minds, influence people, make a change in any small way, build a model, you need to do that. You absolutely need to do that. Now, mentorship, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, I have a different view on mentorship. And I think that one can do taking a walk in the morning. 
I don't need to spend my whole day doing that. And I don't mean to disregard that as a as a less worthy scheme. As I said, always, it's each one to their own. But to me, I wouldn't call it unfinished business, but I would call it, I feel blessed with a lot of things from where I've come in life. And therefore, I feel it's not about giving back. It's that I, I need to be involved. These are my strengths. This is what I do. I can't picture myself doing anything else because when I want to have fun, you know, one can sit on the beach, but that's a illusionary, hallucinating thought that you can do that every day of your life, right? And it's also one that says, I love reading. I'll read whenever I want to. I spend enough time with the family and do whatever it is that I pick and choose. And I think that's very important. To me, being independent is very important. And what I mean, I don't need to be dependent on what I want to necessarily do right now in my life. That gives me... Sorry, what, what does that mean? So I think work-life balance for me is being independent. I'm not dependent. I'm not dependent that if I don't do this and I don't do that, I'm... I mean, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, funding... It's a freedom to do things funding because is you a choose to do. Oh, funding is a crutch, for example. If I just... On your show, it'll be relevant to talk about. You're not... You're always dependent. You're building a model that, of such high dependency. I want to take you back to something that you talked about your childhood. You said you came from a lower middle class background. Could you tell us about that? What was it and how did it influence your entry into entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean... It was a lower middle class. My dad was at that time, I think, working in um, in, in, a, in a battery company and then a little later on with Tata's in some group. I think I don't even remember where. And we used to stay in a, in a, in a one, I would say, a three bedroom place with um, almost my aunts and everybody else. It was, a, it was at Grant Road and really incredibly fond memories. Both my mom and my both aunts, it was a joint family. They all teached piano. So we used to have uh, all my early girlfriends were all people who came to learn the piano. So very, very fond memories. And it gives you a very grounded effect. It just grounds you in a completely different way. It, it kind of gives you, you know, then your surprise and shocks in life are not that much. You can handle setbacks in a different way. You can always look frugal on everything that you do. Yes, you can have, you know, it's not like I wouldn't go out and take large risks, but I can, I can look at the down and the up in a very different name. So Why I think did schooling that... at that stage, Sorry, I, was, I, was, I was in a school called Dunn's Institute before only in the eighth standard, I moved to Cathedral, which is an aspirational school in South Mumbai. And that Dunn's Institute to me was incredible. Today, I still sponsor about 10 kids every year in scholarships from that, from Dunn's Institute. Because I remember, you know, half the people didn't even speak English at that stage. And I didn't, didn't speak much of Hindi at that stage. So it was a good, it was a good, uh, yeah, it was just an excellent leveling background and only fond memories of them. How did this, I mean, at that, in that era, chances should have been that, you know, when you're growing up, the, the default, um, the, the mode was get a good education and then get a good job, yep. which is stable. Yep. And yet you said that early on, for some reason, you told your dad and parents that I don't want to work for someone like, what, what, where did yeah, that come no, I from? Mean, it, was, it was scary. I think some part of it is karma and destiny. I believe in that. Some part, a lot is serendipity. I believe in that too. So I, I don't have an explanation why at the age of 18, 19, 20. But, you know, at that time I used to do theater. I used to do front of camera hosting for Doodashan, the single channel there. So when you start earning 500 rupees on weekends between doing three theater plays with a Padamsi or... Um, doing Young World and Magic Lamp, Q 
cumulatively you earn 500 rupees. That to me is like salary at that point. And this was all hobby. This is what I was loved doing. So that DNA, I think from that day onwards, that, hey, you can make money and really enjoy your work crept into me enough that says I should be doing things for my own. Hmm, so this is that adage where they say that find something that you love so it doesn't feel like work. So your accidental entry into My surreptitious entry, I would say, more hmm. than accidental, hmm. I think, yeah, is, is pretty much that. Yeah, I mean, as I said, when I wanted to start up, I don't think my second answer was I want to build something in media or entertainment because firstly, those words were not even coined at that stage. But I knew that I wanted to do something on my own. And therefore, cable TV just happened. It's my very, very first idea and enterprise because I, I moved into a building in Cuff Parade. And just in terms of choice, one felt one should be able to start a second channel. And at that stage, for the first one year, we had an incredibly rough time. I mean, we didn't make a single sale. Now, imagine if I was in the cut to 2022 and doing something like that, you know, angel investors wouldn't come in. I'd be dependent on something. But when you are at that stage, when you don't have any bank balance, you look at business in a very different, you look at it in a very existential sense. And today I look at anything that I'm doing constantly on the basis of existential, which means that balance of, I have to make sure, that's why I'm obsessed with the bill for five years and 10 years and make sure that once you're in it, you're in it. I mean, to me right now in Swades, we've now taken the faith of the community. One of the biggest things when you're working in the not-for-profit is to build trust. And you can't build trust by making sweeping statements. and by So you can't be, you have to build trust because most of these people in rural India, they have enough people who've come into their villages and told them, I'll put a tap tomorrow in your home and then gone away and come back four years later and said, I'll put a tap in your home. So when you're building that kind of trust, I think my early days gave me that grounding that says, I need to be there. I need to build something frugally where even if all else fails, I'm still there to get it going. So I don't have that context today. When somebody asks me, even in the enterprise that we're doing an upgrad today, you know, when's your next round or what's your runaway? And I'm saying, oh, I don't have any runway. What's your runway? Because, you know, I don't have a concept of a runaway. I don't look at businesses from the point of view of runaway. Before we move on from this point, I just want to go back to that point that you said about when as an 18, 19 year old, you got into things that you enjoyed, you made some money and as you rightly said, serendipitously, it changed your career arc. Do we need more of that in India? Because I think what's also happened is we've always as a country had this concept of, especially as Indian parents, pushing our kids to study, get an undergraduate degree, then get a postgraduate degree, and then decide what you want to do. So what essentially happens, we push them down this path of education and formality and you know, and, and by the time they're 23, 24, and, and this happens, either they've spent a lot of money or they've taken loans, they've gotten MBAs, they become much more risk averse. And yep. therefore that decides the career paths they take. I mean, yep. um, I have a 13 year old son. Do you have children? I have a 35 year old daughter. So she's gone through yep. that phase as well. What would be your advice to parents and to Indians around that 17, that vital mark of 17 to 20, where at least in the West, in America, et cetera, they do encourage yep. people to go out and do things well, and they, earn but money. In America, they also encourage you to fail. And I think that's an important that goes hand coefficient in, hand. in this part. So to answer your question, yes, do we need more of it? Absolutely. Uh, is it a personal choice? See, I think the next, we're not going to be able to have jobs for the next 200 million people that's coming out of our formal or informal education system. And if you want to really be the top three economies in the world, 
the question of entrepreneurship has to come in. And when I started it, it was a it was a low uh, esteem business. Oh, you didn't get a job, so you started something on your own. Today, I think, and you know, our prime minister has evangelized startup in a very nice manner, where it's brought a conversation into the dining table. And I think sometimes those one movements help. Third, as I said, if you look at outside of these top three cities and what we all talk about and what we all read about, there is a lot of that happening. If you, if I, we're on a university here um, in BKC, and when I when I got four of the best uh, brains to sit down and say we want to sit down here and discuss the careers of tomorrow, and the kids there were about 150 in the room, and they said, wait a minute, can we tell you what are the careers of tomorrow? Because we don't really care what McKinsey and ENY think about the careers of tomorrow. We're going to tell you because frankly, the careers of tomorrow is what we consume, what we want, and what do we want to work on. And that was a penny-dropping moment for me. And this has just happened about four months back. So I think the world has changed. People are out there. There is a lot of that disruption happening. And I think some of us, I'm not saying we live in cocoons in, in the way in which we kind of eat, breathe, consume, and the circle that we be in. But there is a lot of that happening. Does it need to be for India? Absolutely. For our employment, we do need an ecosystem. And when everyone says, you know, there are 2,000 200 entrepreneurs this year. I'm saying we need a million. We need a million of them. And they're at different startups. Not all of them need to be this coveted word, which unfortunately is a coveted is usually, word of unicorn. And exactly. And, and it usually represents VC-funded startups yes, and not yes. necessarily yeah. I mean, just I'm entrepreneurs. You guys, I mean, stop getting patting yourself on the back on a uni of being a unicorn. Stop patting yourself on the back. Because your real proof is going to come three years, four years down the line. Just because three investors decided that they wanted to get in there and therefore value it, whatever, because they don't look at valuation in that part and whatever else, that doesn't mean it's to your credit. Upgrad is a unicorn. Upgrad was valued, per my research, over about, what, $2.2 billion? Yes. So by definition of that, yes. Is it an aspirational thing that we set out to do? No. But by definition, we fall under that category, yes. This brings me to Gaurav Munjal, who you will know as a co-founder and CEO of Unacademy. And his story starts in college, where he ran a very successful blog devoted to, wait for this, the actress Priyanka Chopra. And then a Facebook page that earned him thousands of dollars from ads. He was a content creator before it was even a profession. And he explains how this led to Unacademy. Gaurav, you said... Unacademy is not in the education business, it's in the motivation business. You said this in the past. Who is Unacademy trying to motivate? Students? Teachers? Other techs? Help us understand this. So, the statement comes from the philosophy that uh, if people wanted best content and best education, that is already available on YouTube. The reason, and you know, Unacademy started as a free platform because the founders of Unacademy were teaching on YouTube. We got distribution. Um, and at some point we are like, we want to build our own YouTube for education, etc. And education, like entertainment, will be very celebrity driven. So uh, when you have Zomato, Swiggy or other platforms, there you have commoditized labor working for an ABI. Whereas when it comes to content platform, including education, if there is a good teacher, the Pareto principle will be applied and everybody would want to study from that teacher. And if you go to that teacher's class, it's not the content because the content is already available. It's the fact that these teachers, these educators 
make you want to study now uh, some of these teachers are from kota some of these teachers are from delhi uh, and and they inspire the learners that's why you know whether it's uh, mr mrunal in upsc or uh, uh, some educators in uh, j neet these you'll you'll attend the class and you'll be like it's almost like a, a theatrical experience so i think i think i had said that statement in a way that uh, and and that's why our life classes product worked i mean we launched the product in jan end 2019 uh, and it was life classes subscription to the best teachers and uh, this year uh, the revenues of that product will be upwards of 1000 crores so i think uh, i think and honestly every single piece of content that is being taught in our classes is already available in some form of, or the other but learners still come to learn from the best teachers because these teachers motivate the learners to crack these examinations or these teachers would would just tell them something that would inspire them intrinsically which they would not get uh, at other places so i'd like to go deeper into that so what you what you're saying and and as i understand it is an inversion of the way my generation and i am an older generation viewed education which was essentially that what was in the books mattered right the syllabus mattered the theory mattered and then occasionally you would have the one teacher or the two teacher who were exceptional and and you recognize that but you never expected that everyone would be like that right and what you're saying now it's it's kind of inverted you're saying the theory from what you just said you said what we are teaching everyone else has access to the same the same it's who's teaching it so now the exceptions the few teachers we all remember from our school days are now no longer exceptions they are being elevated and and what you are trying to do is that what if 80% of the people that you learn from are exceptional is that is that a way to kind of look at it yeah i i think specifically for test prep j and neat in every city even when i was growing up let's say 15 years ago there was these famous teachers that this person is very good in physics etc but yeah now that has become a norm uh, now these exceptional teachers especially online education uh, these these teachers are uh, the teachers who everybody wants to learn from uh, and we'll have let's say 10 or 20 teachers where the entire country would be learning from etc and i think uh, i think that shift has happened Uh, but it, see when i was in first year i took this course i went to uh, i went to a, a college where uh, the academics were not so good so i i would end up sitting in the library and uh, learn online so there was this program called cs 106a by stanford this is 2008 2009 this was the first year where they put classes of the, that teacher online and if you see how mr mehran sahami taught you know his it was almost like a theater like in one of the classes he would come dressed as, as somebody else he would have a story etc so i think even in the best universities etc the way some of these teachers teach um, you know they they get known for that uh, so but now because of internet that will happen a lot and that has been happening a lot i mean uh, uh, if if you see one of our competitors physics wala he he built an entire company on top of that so uh, so yeah i think it will continue to happen a lot what were you as a child i mean i i remember just being uh, very rebellious every parent teachers meeting uh, <laughs> my parents would come home and 
they would reprimand me because something I did, something I did in the class, I threw some chalk. I don't know. I, I was very rebellious as a kid, but I was also very creative. So I would be involved. I would want to be a part of every single extracurricular activity. I remember I made a short film when I was in 10th standard. Uh, I used to love coding a lot, a lot. What was your family history? Uh, what What did your uh, folks do? So, uh, uh, my father is a doctor. Uh, he was the uh, he was the part of this hospital, Saket Hospital, which is one of the largest hospitals in Jaipur. And my mother used to run. She is not a doctor, but she ran her diagnostic center, etc. So we grew up in Jaipur. I was born in Bikaner. Then we grew up in uh, Jaipur. A typical middle class family. Uh, uh, Did that have anything to do with your worldview also? Because you've you've referred to the fact that doctors are also in some senses, the same cycle has played out in India with doctors where particular doctors, once they become very good and they start earning a certain amount of money, they realize that they call the shots and either they open their own clinics or they go to a different... And, and that same dynamic is playing out with teachers. It's essentially talent. No, I, I was... I had zero interest in that. So I remember uh, I was 11 or 12 years old I had read some Dainik Bhaskar or Patrika or something uh, that Bill Gates became a billionaire uh, or something like that. I remember uh, going to my father at the age of 11 or 12 and telling him that like he started Windows, I want to start something called Doors. So I remember that, uh, see, one of the one of the reasons that uh, uh, I think an academy will succeed and whatever we do will succeed. And I'm not coming from a... Uh, like a narcissistic point of view or from a overconfident point of view. This is all I wanted to do as a kid. Uh, I'm living the best life. I It's it's like I found my passion early on. And uh, uh, this and, you know, I used to love stories. So I would I would read Harry Potter a lot. I would, uh, I would read fiction a lot. These days it's more non-fiction, but whether, you know, my, one of my favorite books is Catcher in the Rye or, you know, I, I would read these books. And somehow, for me, coding and creating products, uh, and, and I used to write stories, for me that creation was super important. From that, what's your advice to young folks on choosing a career and becoming good at it over time? See, my advice is that... Uh, uh, my usually advice is that, um, I don't know, let me, I need to think on this because, uh, I mean, usually now my advice would be that one of one of the reasons that I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur is because I was a content creator first. See, when it's, when it's either creating a product or content, you realize that, uh, you know, you get this infinite scale that you will not get if you are getting paid by the hour. So my advice usually becomes that uh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, creation will be huge. Now, whether you are creating a game on Roblox, there are kids in US creating games on Roblox. Whether you are creating a YouTube channel, whether you are live streaming on Twitch, you are a chess player, but you live stream on Twitch and you make hundreds of thousands of dollars. 
So my advice usually is that these leverage points that you have, uh, use them uh, and understand that the, uh, you know, this, this whole education system, and I know I'm trying to get them to uh, these colleges, uh, but I think entering into these colleges makes them a good employee. It prepares them to be a good employee. It does not make them a creator. So I am, I mean, I, I was obsessed with computer science, but I knew I hated physics, chemistry, maths. So I didn't get into IIT. But in a way, I'm also lucky because I think if I would have gotten into an IIT, uh, I think I would have been more satisfied with my life because I went to Xavier's Jaipur where all the toppers come from and all my friends went into IIT Bombay. I had this itch that, you know, uh, I'm a failure. So I, w I used to do things more differently and I used to hard work even more because I used to be in this constant uh, uh, race that, you know, they have already taken a step ahead. Um, Interesting. So if I were to kind of place you in some kind of a bug, it's like the intersection of two circles, one of which is doing something which you enjoyed and the other one is a sense that you did not get what you want and you failed. So you're doing something which you enjoy. At the same time, you also have this chip on your shoulder that I want to kind of yeah. prove to the others and that both of them fuel each other. Yeah. Okay. I mean, what? it used to be, that was an initial motivator. Now I really give a fuck about, I mean, the extrinsic part. Now I think intrinsically, uh, you know, I see founders, uh, how they change after getting their secondary. Like they'll make a million bucks and they'll be like, they'll take weekends off and they'll travel and they'll they'll chill. And I'm not talking about the best founders. I'm talking about some founders who do that. And I don't get it. For me, the more I achieve or even when I uh, made some money, I just wanted to work even harder next day because this, this was the byproduct. What still motivates me is that I remember that, uh, uh, you know, everybody has something that they want to show to the world. I remember that I was, I was a, uh, I was a very socially awkward kid. I was I was weird in a way. I used to talk, but I used to be weird in that sense that my classmates would not like me. They would think that he is different. But then I remember in when I was 12 years old, I made this KBC uh, program in QBasic. QBasic was the language. And uh, we showed it. The teacher liked it so much that they called everyone in the class and they showed that program to them. And... Uh, I think in a way, I'm still that kid who wants his products uh, to be, uh, like, who wants his products to be appreciated by the What are you, pal? On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate yourself as a CEO and as a spouse? <laughs> I don't know. I, I normally ask parent, but let's go with spouse in your case. I think maybe four or five on ten as a CEO, I think I have a lot to learn. I think uh, uh, I'm nowhere close to and maybe uh, two or three on ten because I'm not able to give time to Rima. That says something, right? That both of your, the most important roles, your... No, but, your but, my, but my wife would rate me higher and my uh, investors employees. would... And my yeah. investors and employees would rate me higher. I just think, uh, uh, and sometimes you get this debate in your head, I just think that uh, my expectation of myself 
is much more than what the shareholders or the investors expect of me. Uh, like they would be happy if I deliver half of what I'm planning to, uh, but I wouldn't be happy. So I think that's that's the problem. If you were locked in a room for 24 hours without any internet, 24 hours, mind you, not one 60 minutes or 90 minutes, what would you do? I mean, I love thinking. I can, I can just uh, like I can just sit and think for hours and hours and. I just need a paper and a pencil or uh, an iPad and an Apple, Apple pencil. And What's your favorite cuisine or dish? Something that you'll eat six or ten times when you go out. Indian. <laughs> what a... Indian? Indian is not even a cuisine. It's just so many cuisines within there. Or a dish. I mean, I love, I'm a Punjabi. I love Indian food. It's, you know, Rajma Chawal or chicken and garlic naan. and <laughs> I mean, the usual stuff. But I also... Uh, occasionally would like Thai curry and rice and you know the which morning of the week do you look forward to the most I think Monday uh, because Mondays are usually uh, see I I have an issue that I'm a workaholic so Sundays I get very bored I'm like okay you sat with friends you had some shisha you you chilled you had a drink you watched some Netflix but what I really, really, really love doing is work. So I just want to go back to the office on Monday. Because this is what happens with me on a vacation also. I can't do a vacation for more than three days. Like my honeymoon was three days. Because third day I was like, I need to go back to my office. So so the hack that I figured out is that me and my wife and some of our friends would take these weekend getaways. Because for a weekend I can chill. Third it's almost like they're training you to gradually get to longer vacations. We <laughs> yeah. get from a no, weekend I'm, to no, three no, days I, and no, no, then to five con- days. No, but I'm a super control freak on vacations also. Like unless there is a planned itinerary and everything is on the calendar. Oh, you're like the worst person to vacation with. <laughs> no, no, but they love it. Because like I would have taken care of the fact that if we are leaving the hotel, then there will be sandwiches and parathas in the car for everyone. They initially thought it's a bad thing, but then they would take like like I managed to the point that if somebody likes sparkling water more than still water, then in their car they'll have that. So so like you know I, I would optimize to that level. And so I did ask you earlier, do you have OCD tendencies? Now I think it's very clear that you do like this aspect of yourself. On a scale of one to ten, how happy are you with your life? Uh, now I'm probably seven and a half eight. Uh, six months ago, I was probably a two or three. Now, um, now I think the business is in a better shape. I have I gained a lot of weight in the last couple of years. So I have started taking care of the health lately. I'm eating better. I'm playing tennis three times a week. Uh, it's a long journey. I have to lose weight, but uh, I get tests done every quarter. So metrics are normal. Uh, I am able to spend time with Rima and my pet dog I have a shih tzu called Albus so um, and I have a good circle of friends so I think I think I'm fairly is there uh, something that you've geeked out over recently a product a service a book anything uh, everything in AI I mean it's 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 so fascinating like literally uh, 24 hours ago I saw a video uh and it looked like a very real video. Text but it, generated from text. No, no, there was this human being. But at the end of the day, that was an AI person. 
text generated i mean i got a lot of flack for it on twitter also that this is basic but see that's where it will start it will be the basic stuff but then you'll learn yeah but the improvement is exponential not yeah. linear so i think uh, i think everything that's happening in ai second i'm very fascinated by robotics i think when i was growing up my parents didn't have a mobile phone i think my father got a phone when i was in 10th standard um and then suddenly i had a phone when i was in 11th and i used to talk to my friends on sms then college sms was like a thing and then like by the by the time college was ending a few of my rich friends had blackberry and then everybody in 3 years was on whatsapp so this drastic shift from mobile phone to internet to social media i think i think the next generation would see this in robotics i think every single person or a family or household would have some form of a robot so i think i think that's uh, and i'm i'm not even talking about self driving cars like i was an sf and you know about this company cruise cruise is like they have all gms yes right? they have yeah. already rolled out driverless cars it's super fascinating that whether it's content creation or driverless cars or robotics i think next 10 years people don't realize that they are going to be so different from the last 10 because see last 10 may 2007 is when the iphone was launched so let's say by the time 2011 2012 it kind of picked up everybody had a smartphone so last 10 years was the smartphone next 10 i think we are talking about fundamental shifts thank you so much gaurav thanks a lot for uh, inviting me and asking me interesting questions Lastly we have Smita Deora the co-founder and CEO of Lead School like Gaurav and Ronnie she's built a massive institution in education too Smita built Lead School as a way to completely rejig the education system and everything it's built off the curriculum pedagogy technology even the parents mindsets and like our other guest she also has a very interesting story driving her and it starts when her daughter was only 6 months old smita you and sumit started lead as i understand based on a bunch of things that happened to your personal lives etc you as parents uh, your experiences with people who worked for you and how they you know send their children to school the fact that sumit's parents were teachers etc tell us a bit more about these personal experiences that led the two of you to create lead sure uh, so you know lead and the work that both of us do um is a very very personal journey for us uh for sumit as as you rightly mentioned he comes from a family of teachers he grew up in a very small town uh was amongst those few rare kids who actually went out went to ime uh you know and then lived in singapore and hence he could see the difference between the opportunities that were available to kids who were coming from bigger cities uh, me being one of them uh, as compared to kids back home which city did you grow uh, up in i grew up in mumbai uh and uh, and and hence his uh, especially from singapore every time he used to travel back the gap that uh, he saw in what was available to children in singapore and what was available to kids especially in small towns was something that was glaring and uh, there is a teacher in him and you know his his passion was in that space uh, uh, and and he wanted to come back to india and 
डू समथिंग अबाउट इट माई जर्नी वॉज एक्चुअली वेरी पर्सनल एंड स्टार्टड फ्राम मी बिंग अ पेरेंट द ऑफकोर्स एडुकेशन वॉज अ डिनर टेबल कॉन्वर्सेशन एट आर प्लेस बिकॉज ऑफ सुमीट्स पैशन फॉर इट आई एम यू नो आई एम अ लॉट मोर साइंटिफिक एज एन आई आई लव रिसर्चिंग आई लव टू नो about uh, neuroscience brain science and i was always very intrigued how humans develop and and hence you know these these were conversations we we both used to really like uh, back in 2007 uh, sumit decided that he wanted to come back to india uh, and uh, work i mean do something in education here were uh, the two of you married then we were already married we were in fact uh, so we got married back in 2002 and uh, we in that year were expecting our first child uh, so uh, it was an interesting uh, return journey back home uh, where the trigger was his passion uh, for education but also uh, this very important decision the two of us were making that uh, we will raise our child uh, in india uh, and now for me as a parent that's where uh, the Uh, scientist and me sort of jumped in because uh, see singapore is amongst the top ranked pisa countries pisa are these uh, assessments and rankings that are done on quality of education and india the year before uh, i think uh, Been a couple of years it for a while yeah had has participated only once and out of the 73 countries that participated india was 72 so now as a parent i was very aware or to be parent i was aware that i am going to raise my child in a country which is amongst the bottom whereas singapore was amongst the top 10 and hence i sort of jumped in and uh, started learning about it and started learning about what can i do as a parent uh, and and my first teaching experiences were actually with my own baby uh, so that is how my journey began if i could in just education. interrupt you what were the two of you doing in singapore were both of you working what so we... both of us were working in uh, procter and gamble png uh, sumit was on the marketing side brand side i was uh, on the finance side uh, in fact i think the year we moved uh, uh, i was recently promoted so my boss was quite unhappy that i was moving back it just felt right uh, you know to to move back uh, over here and sumit was very keen to to be working in education so we just said okay it's okay let's just let's just pack our bags and go back so that that decision that you made now there are two decisions right the first is of course you know to move back to india the other is both of you are working for one of the world's most well known retail fmcg companies long known for innovation with a lot of structures and processes behind it leadership grooming etc to a completely new sector like education where granted Sumit's parents may have been teachers, but neither of you had any experience. What made the two of you think that you could be entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, in a space you had absolutely no idea about? Yeah. See now, the, this is interesting. So, uh, one thing about both of us is that uh, we both uh, believe and take a lot of joy in learning, and. Uh, we don't get stopped by things that we don't know in fact the more we don't know uh the more intrigued we are the more we want to do something about it i think here uh sumit's passion at that point was how can i uh how can i change the way education is in in this country uh, what can i do about it uh, my passion at that time was i i actually continued with png when we moved to india my passion was uh, 
I'm going to be a parent. What what is it that I can do for my child? Uh, what can I? What opportunities can I bring for my child? Uh, and I think we both were so passionate about these respective things that we researched and we read and we built skills around it. Uh, we did not let it stop us that we don't know. Uh, secondly, you know, uh, entrepreneurship uh, for both of us was not necessarily something that we planned will happen. Uh, it was, uh, I would say in some ways, at least for me, I would say it was out of compulsion. Compulsion because uh, there there was a problem I was seeing in front of me. Uh, I was not seeing solutions that could systemically solve that problem. Uh, and hence I said, hey, I just need to roll up my sleeves and jump in and see how far I go. So entrepreneurship is not something that I planned. It happened to me. And uh, it was it's it's been a great learning experience and continues to be. So there's a lot of joy. So all this is valid. And I'm going to insert one of the questions that one of our listeners has sent, which I think is very important. How did you find your first 10 or 20 colleagues when you started, considering that both of you were coming from a completely different country, completely different organizations? Who were the first? You did not have existing anchors in education or ed tech, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So how did you find your first 10 or 20 colleagues? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll bridge a little bit before I can answer that question now more specifically. See, we came back in 2007 and the lead journey uh, began in 2012. So over those five years, uh, you know, both of us had our own paths. Sumit uh, joined uh, this company called uh, Zlearn. Uh, as, so as there the was CEO. a precursor. Yeah, there was a precursor. So he joined that company as the CEO. He took it, uh, he, he really scaled that company, took it to listing. And that allowed him a lot of learning. Uh, in the meantime, of course, we, we developed an ecosystem of friends and people who were educators and who came from this space. Uh, I uh, actually did a lot of side consulting assignments but essentially, uh, from 2007 to 2010, immersed myself in early childhood learning. So uh, it sounds crazy to people, but I, I was started... Was that because a, you were a parent or because, because you I were was preparing yourself for entrepreneurship? Because I was a no. parent. And I All think right. my, my journey towards entrepreneurship was fairly organic because I first started with my kid. I started a reading program with her at the age of six months. She was an independent reader even before she could speak. And then I discovered and I learned when I used those techniques that there's nothing special about her. It's just that she was... Uh, she got the stimulus. Yeah, she, she got, got the, the stimulus. And why can't we provide that to more kids? Uh, and in parallel, what happened was that, you know, see, I grew up in Mumbai, but I had, during my growing up years, never paid attention to the slums that surround all these buildings. But, you know, becoming a parent changed the lens through which I started looking at things. And uh, while I did see poor kids, it didn't bother me as much or did not stand out as much till the date I realized in the car is this one child, but there is another child of the same age who is in very difficult conditions. So I think this also uh, triggered, uh, triggered questions in my mind that is my life only going to be about raising two kids? Or given that I have now a pool of savings and I am educated, is there something more I can do? And especially now that I was discovering things about how a young baby can learn. Uh, so I actually started a non-profit uh, in 2010. 
which was two years before the lead journey. Uh, and uh, this was, and, and this is where entrepreneurship happened by chance. For almost seven to eight months, I must have met all of the possible large NGOs, uh, hoping that maybe I'll join them and I will make a difference because I'd, I'd made up my mind that that is something that, uh, you know, I, I find meaningful. Uh, but uh, I was actually not very, I was a little disillusioned when I met people because what I found was that the um, mindset and the approach that most of these people, you know, most of these uh, nonprofits had was very incremental. See, India is a very large country and has lots of children. And the education problem is large and it's deep. So it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, what I saw was many of them, of course, for for all the justified reasons, were looking at it as incremental change. Hey, these kids are not getting much. Can we do a little more? Can we do something more? Uh, whereas my approach fundamentally has always been, you can't uh, bring transformation unless and until you work vision backwards. So, you know, you, you actually design for excellence. You're not designing for poverty. You're not saying that, hey, this is where everyone is. Let me do a little more. You say, this is where everyone should be. And hence, what can I do to get everyone there? And you you come up with a different set of ideas when you take that approach. I know this is an unfair question because I'm asking you to imagine something. But do you think you and Sumit would have ever started, or you especially, would have started lead if you were not a parent? It's uh, it's a tough one for me to answer because I can't imagine what it would be like. But it is very much true for me, particularly. I think Sumit would. I I've known yeah, him now for so many years. It yes, looks like he, he would have, have anyways gone it. in that yeah. direction. Uh, for me, uh, uh, Zoya was the turning point. My own child was the turning point. So you said earlier. I mean, the way you look at other children changes. Yeah. Once you are a parent, because then you don't just see a child, you see a, a set of possibilities and opportunities and Absolutely. you're wondering, do they have Absolutely. the same ones? I think that's why I love children. I especially love working with very young children. I love whenever I'm visiting a school, my energy zone is the pre-primary section. They are just bright eyed. They are always energetic. There is hope and because sponges. they've not been they're just absorbing, they're sponges yeah. and they are just also givers of love. And, you know, I keep telling my daughter, actually, that I do what I do today all because of you, both because uh, you you coming in my life changed the way I started looking at the world. Uh, and secondly, uh, a, a lot of work that I did with Zoya and the way she responded to it gave me a lot of positive energy that hey, kids are actually waiting for this. And uh, this is possible. You know, as, as I said, when I saw how she was reading. She she was an avid reader by the time she was older. And my younger one, actually, uh, she did a lot of the uh, 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 teaching of reading in a lot of ways, right, through games and stuff. Uh, and when I saw that, and I was like, see, I've empowered this child for the rest of her life because wherever she goes, she's reading on her own, she's curious. And if that can be done for all children, why not? So I think for me, that is the energy. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of this, uh, Rohan. When uh, COVID was, I mean, COVID had hit. I, I remember that, uh, you know, there was this morning when we got to know that Bangalore schools had shut down. It was 11th of March or something. And, you know, Sumit and me were driving to work and we were still trying to figure out what's happening. And when the schools shut down in Bangalore, 
and our our business was largely in the south at that time we were partnering with some 700 schools at that point of time our first reaction was what happens to the kids because they are no longer in school their end of year assessments are there and they have to prep for the new academic year and schools won't know what to do so what can we do about it it was not business it was not anything else and in 5 days in 5 days literally we launched lead school at home which was an online class that our tutors were doing because our school teachers i mean we didn't have any time to communicate with our schools and we basically started that and in fact that of course over 2 years became a whole you know a whole online lead school platform till covid was there which we of course shut down because we don't need it but i think the the then you know, this example is just an anecdote to share all of the decisions that we make come from the place of what is in the best interest of the child how do we reach out to more children our sense of urgency to grow also comes from every year that we don't reach kids it's like a generation lost so how can we get there fast and that just gives me immense energy so um that's well, my driver first principles started out as a podcast but is today also a newsletter and community We'd love to get questions from our listeners and subscribers for our future guests, book recommendations, habits, or even silent Sunday photos. Check this episode show notes for a link that lets you submit all of these and more. See you next fortnight on the podcast and this Sunday on the newsletter.